vaccine i am not steve cuff um as has become something of a, a distressing tradition uh whenever we have a uh, major guest who could potentially boost the profile of the podcast uh <laughs> steve just deserts us and leaves me the uh, stammering idiot uh co-host to uh, handle matters but uh, let's see uh, let's see if we can avoid an embarrassment and uh, have a fun time because we are still yeah you should just be a good host this time well I, it's it's not my strong suit sean i gotta say i'm much better at uh, just kind of bouncing off people and uh, making asinine comments and, and and rolling through it but directing traffic no i'd make a piss poor crossing guard i'll say that um anyhow sean is here we are still in october we are still introducing him to uh to horror directors uh and and we we found one it's kind of shocking he has he's not experienced uh based on yeah. being friends with us for so fucking long um but sean how you doing i'm doing well how are you i i'm surviving right now you know a little bit flustered a little bit out of sorts out of my element but uh are you ready for october to uh reach its end have you have we worn you out this month i am i think the george bootcaret films really kind of sapped my strength but um i'm excited to to uh have the last week of october to watch whatever the hell i want and not whatever you guys want me to watch so that's nice so you're not joining us for our patreon exploration of hulu hellraiser and halloween ends no oh that's a damn shame sean uh yeah th- this is you you seem to be clamoring for more halloweeny sorts of films and i i think that uh, hen and Lauder our subject today uh, delivers that to a far greater extent yeah. than perhaps uh, <laughs> your boot great. Yeah. Well, long enough uh, jabbering, I should introduce our guest. Uh, we have uh, Josh Lewis of the Sleezoids podcast. Uh, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I am happy to be on another podcast out there that has covered the necromantic films and had a great time doing so, I imagine. <laughs> Are you are you pissed we didn't have you on the? Do you know what I think? For, I, I I've taken a bit of a break. I only did the first two necromantic films, and then I, I haven't done the rest yet. So I don't know if I was ready for more yet. But it's been enough of a break. It's been a couple of years. So at some point, I should go back. Uh, you should. Yeah. I mean, yeah. As we talked about on the episode, like I think Myros and I are both on the same page that uh, his two other major works are different and better hell yeah yeah for sure for sure uh uh shram and their totus king are both quite interesting films uh a lot more going on in those than i would say sort of the confrontational infantile uh <laughs> sleaze that that you'll see in the necromantic films mm-hmm. uh there's there's certainly an element of that that carries through all of his work but uh there's also a great poetry it's 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 an interesting I would recommend so there's more back, poetry so. than a guy just being like gutted to death and ejaculating all over the camera. Yeah. Yes. I mean, you still get, you still get, you know, a uh, hammering of a penis, uh, but it's, yeah, there's there, he's flexing a muscle that you don't see in that. No, all right. Yeah. Yeah. We're worth investigating. Uh, put it on your calendar for next Halloween. Okay. <laughs> I mean, those are very October films. You got to watch them right as you get into the trick or treating. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Well, anyway, as as previously mentioned, we are in fact discussing uh, New York sleaze auteur uh, Frank Henenlotter this week, and uh, the these are a lot more fun. I'll say that. Um, Henenlotter is, for those unfamiliar, kind of one of the big names in New York exploitation films of of the eighties, especially. Um, yeah, I I mean, we covered last year Larry Cohen, and I think Henenlotter. Fits nicely into that similar vein. I, I wish we could figure a way to jam uh, Lustig in, but I, it doesn't really fit this format because he doesn't have really four horror movies. No, um, but he's got more like direct-to-video action. If you wanted to go in that route with the Maniac Cop films and stuff, sure, sure. Yeah, I need to. I need to do those sometime though. The so. second one yeah, has I, some insane stunt work, like really dangerous-looking stuff for the budget level that it's on. But those three filmmakers are definitely like the holy trio of you know, like New York guerrilla-style exploitation filmmakers. Sure. Yeah, you'll get another uh, another example in the last film we cover is. Uh, James Glickenhaus is actually, uh, he has like a cameo in Bad Biology, but um, he's another one on there, uh, most known for The Exterminator. Mm. But, um, yeah, this is, I, I suppose we start with Basket Case, because this is kind of the one. I mean, I, people ought to appreciate Hennenlotter for many reasons. I mean, maybe you, you just aren't into the uh, the gorilla sleaze but uh that uh, henenlotter if you're one of these vinegar syndrome people uh you should be appreciative because he's a, a very prominent figure in the 90s in the preservation of, of grindhouse films through something weird um so yeah he's all around despite the fact that he's basically only made a handful of films and never with any sort of funding uh and really not a ton of notoriety i think basket case is far and away his, his most well-known and successful film but uh yeah he's still a super important figure in underground horror and i'm excited to to get into it so uh sean i saw you mm-hmm. i saw you rate these films and you you had right at the bottom the wrong choice uh basket case <laughs> which is one of yeah. the absolute best uh for my money exploitation films ever <laughs> Yeah, actually, I'm kind of excited because I think uh, both of you are going to disagree with my ranking. But um, <clears throat> but yeah, Basket Case, I thought I thought was was really uh, fun. And like, I, I didn't really know what to expect. I mean, at a certain like point when you hear like this, like NYC sleaze of the 80s, you kind of get a certain sense. But um, I, I was like happy with like the places he was willing to go um, and just like how simple the like the design of this film is um like even though it's my least favorite of this group uh by a small margin um it, it it's it's really fun but um it, it's interesting because i had only known this movie really as besides the poster as uh the uh twist of malignant like people were referring to this film right and and so i was i i kept thinking about like what what the differences are and you guys both of you have seen much more of both of these kinds of movies than i have but like the difference between something that is uh you know modern like at least like especially like post uh 2000 um horror movie that is simple like malignant like there isn't you know it's like procedural and there there isn't like a it's not very convoluted plot wise 
and something like basket case, which also is very simple, but there's something in like just the, the, like, I guess mise-en-scene in the eighties, uh, before now. And like, obviously shooting on film probably is different in terms of like how you light, um, rather than digital stuff now. Um, but just the difference in like Juan style versus Henlotters that, that there's a very like simple simplicity to the fabric of basket case that is fun to watch does that make any sense yeah sure sure yeah uh for 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 me the thing about basket case that i've always really and the thing that always impressed me about hen and lauder and especially the early stuff i think when he got later he got a little bit more uh i don't even want to say basket case isn't goofy but there's something that i go every time i'm watch basket case i'm always struck by the fact that despite him very clearly operating in a grindhouse setting. I believe that film cost like $30,000 and he had a crew of like four or five people. And most of that money very clearly went to the little meatball screaming brother Bilal, <laughs> who's, uh, you know, been been forcefully separated uh, from his brother by New York's filthiest medical professionals at the behest of their parents who, you know, see Bilal, uh, you know, as a, you know, a, a freak, something that shouldn't exist, even though they wait until their teenage years when they've kind of formed an emotional relationship before they do it, which is clearly a really big mistake. But that development, I think, is really interesting about it because Henenlotter takes it despite using Bilal as a very violent gag at every opportunity that he can, he surprisingly takes the relationship between Dwayne and Bilal on a pretty serious sort of emotional level or psychological yeah. level between the two. And I, sure. it reminds me a little bit of, you know, because uh, he would sometimes get Cronenberg comparisons, which I don't find particularly accurate beyond some of the interest <laughs> in body horror, I guess. But this is the one where I do find there is a little bit of like sadness and tragedy and where I, I see things like the fly or dead ringers in, you know, the anxiety that these characters have and the psyche mm -hmm. break that happens from literally separating them in the gruesome way that they are. Yeah, it's, it, there is some stuff in this movie that it, it does kind of break tendency. I mean, this movie is, it's marketed like, you know, one of the Herschel Gordon Lewis movies or something. It's got that wonderful grindhouse trailer of, oh, what's in the basket? <laughs> and yeah, it, it is that mainly. That's that's the bulk of this film, but it has stuff in it where you're just like, what? What the hell am I watching? Where that, especially the ending, this whole scene with Dwayne just like running stark naked through the streets and like uh, placing himself through in, in the body of Belial, essentially. It, it is it's really stark. It's, it's really impressive. And I, I don't know that it might be like my favorite imagery that I, I've seen in any of Hannon Lauder's work. Frankly, I, I think it's, it's not where he ended up going, which is fine. Cause where he ended up going is certainly a, a very fun and interesting place in and of itself. But, uh, well, outside of, you know, the sequels to this film, which are, uh, kind of unfortunate <laughs> in their existence. Uh, this movie ends, in a, a quite tragic fashion that has an impact and uh mm. the other movies are quite bad so i, I might recommend <laughs> staying away from those <laughs> so it's not a it's a, it's not an it's alive situation as much as they're about uh really ugly babies well i mean it is an it's alive situation to an extent in that uh it's alive Two and island of the alive are just like exceedingly campy films based on this sort of movie that 
takes itself far more seriously than its premise would lead you to believe. Um, sure. But I, I would say it's alive and it's alive, uh, or it's alive too. And it's, uh, Island of the Alive or whatever you are, uh, <laughs> are much better, better, better made films than basket case two and three, which are gotcha. really just like homage to Todd Browning's freaks, except also just very, 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 very camp. And, uh, uh, to me, not it's not my tone. I'll say that, but uh, I'm sure they're for. Yeah, I was. I wasn't expecting uh, like going back to like what I, what like what my conception of his work was before I watched it. I had no idea it was all body horror, and so that was really. Um, even though it isn't like you said, Josh, like the body horror that we uh, associate with Cronenberg, um, that really was exciting to me, and I think that that is. Um, part of my particular joy in watching these, especially these three films, these core ones progress in like his, uh, his, um, I guess want to just to explore that body horror in like ways that really lets like the id come out. Um, and that is like you you get less of that in basket case like this feels more like to me like the like the blueprint or like the platform that he uh built those two films on yeah i mean i could i could see like like brain damage is something where he he ups the budget um and he definitely gets to you know get a little bit more freaky and psychedelic with some of the imagery that he's pulling off um but the i've i still have always really been taken to how gruesome and splattery and slapstick basket case is for how little it costs because like very clearly again it has a grindhouse premise to it and it's where it's a you know this really you know splatter revenge film where you have this little deformed brother who is you know uh, being carried around in a basket by his brother to go and kill various doctors who separated them and the thing that like like there are some images in this like like that image of the uh doctor or nurse that they go to and she just has like six or seven different types of blades sticking out of her face and the horror imagery in there <laughs> and how wrapped up that is in like there is like a gleefulness to it and a schlockiness to it that i think most people which is what tricks most people into finally deciding they're gonna watch a hen and lauder film and then you end up watching it and you also get scenes where like the little brother Bilal pops out of the toilet and then has a very serious conversation with his brother about you know the, <laughs> the fact that you know he recognizes the way that he's you know been dehumanized and the way that you know he doesn't have a body and you know he, he has a little ten there's a there's a tender melodrama about a caregiver and yeah. a you know a, a, def, a deformed brother and it's just the whiplash of those two things things i think it's something that you either you know you really feel it and you get on board with it or it's something that's gonna maybe distract people but for me the combination of like being this really bleak midnight movie with with some genuinely and i'll say it across all of his films uh some upsetting imagery like the 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 sequence that i find the most upsetting in basket case every time is when Bilal you're you're meant to sympathize with him because he you know isn't he wants to be normal like his brother and he wants to have a girlfriend and he wants to have a body and you know you, you they surprisingly they put you in the psychological headspace of wanting those things and then you watch him murder Dwayne's you know new girlfriend and just flail around mm -hmm. on top of her body attempting to rape her but he can't and it's one of those things that I think another filmmaker would have sanded that off 
um because you mm-hmm. know you're the whole time you're kind of sympathizing with Bilal's state and it is eventually tragic when he and Dwayne both die and but that's the kind of thing that Hen and Lauder would leave in in most of these films too and I and I do think would make them I mean as he described it uh you know he he never said that he made horror films because the idea was that a studio could make horror films and they could make respectable films and he grew up because from Presumably because he had conservative parents sort of Wes Craven style. He escaped to the 42nd Street grindhouses and he was like, no, no, no. This is the this is the stuff. (laughs) This is the stuff that's really going to get people, you know, talking and out of their seats and feeling uncomfortable and really saying something. And uh, yeah, Basket Case for me is I, I agree that it's one of like the prime examples of, you know, someone taking some of that uh 70s kind of bleak attitude and then you know bringing it into the 80s splatter uh kind of craze and the fact that he did that while also being you know in some ways mean and not fun um i think just you know makes it a little bit stronger for me yeah there that that uh psychological dexterity that you're talking about is is quite impressive uh here <clears throat> so um but all of that was very well said. Yeah, yeah. I, I for me, it's it's all about my first experience watching this film. Like this is the first Hen and Lauder I saw, and you know, I I was aware of the trailer, and it, it was something that I kind of expected to be a lark, and I just had so much fucking fun with it. Everyone's hair looks like a ridiculous wig. Every set is just a filthiest piece of garbage you've ever seen. Including like doctors' offices, where you're like, "What the fuck? This does not pass for a doctor's office under any circumstance." But it's it's glorious. And then you get to like that that scene that bookend or like the middle of the. It, it's got to be like you know second act scene where Dwayne is kissing his love interest, and we we all of a sudden Belial, uh, who is let's just say he's not on model a lot of this film. Uh, sometimes he's. Uh, approximately four times the size he is at other times and doesn't seem like he could fit in a basket other times he's fitting in a toilet bowl it's it's all over town but there's a point where he he just becomes claymation and tears apart this hotel room and my god the first time i saw it i i i have seldom laughed so hard in my life i I, there's something about this jank (laughs) stop motion that is it's just pure joy for me yeah, I mean, I've I've always really liked, especially to the the sense of humor that comes from treating Bilal kind of seriously, because there is like, for example, a really great scene where they have him like curled up in a ball next to a fireplace where they're reading him bedtime stories or the sight gag where he's popping out of the toilet or um, the uh, really uh, great scene where they get revenge on their father. And you you have this, you know, there's a great low budget, um, just inventiveness with the camera where, you know, they they clearly couldn't do a giant prosthetic for the dad. So they just take like two bloody legs and they just have them get split down the Mm -hmm. middle on either side of the frame and just have them fall. And yeah, like there's for for me, just like I I love the fact that you kind of care about this little this little monstrous ball and then he also still gets to do all of the amazing gruesomely textured violence that you would expect of of this period absolutely and uh yeah i i think we probably ought to get moving but uh shout out to uh beverly bonner who is really like the only one of 
of Hannah Lauder's true regulars. I mean, you'll see a few actors show up in all of them, but Beverly Bonner is in every one of his films <laughs> that we're going to cover. Even, even the later one, Bad Biology, she shows up. Uh, I, yeah, so she's kind of his, his most regular player, and this is her biggest contribution, I would say, and yeah, she rules. Um, but anyway, we're moving on. That's enough of uh, old Belial. Uh, that is another thing that really tickles me too, I guess, is that he is named Belial. Uh, <laughs> the parents seemingly just refuse to name Dwayne him. and Belial. Yeah, it's just like, his, his name is just a demon's name. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even think he was named that by the parents who refused to name him. Sure. It seems like the loving aunt perhaps still named him Belial. <laughs> yes. Awesome. This movie rules, uh, as does the next one. Uh, brain damage. Uh, quite a few years later, actually. Um, this yeah, Hannah Lauder guy, he, he really scene. likes a film about a little guy attached to you. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that's about. I believe Basket Case 2 is between these, but... Uh, no, it's after. Okay. Brain damage is the next one. It's just a, just a long break. Um... So, yeah, this is a movie, uh, maybe it doesn't connect with me quite on the same level because this movie is about something. <laughs> uh, Basket <laughs> Case is just kind of like unadulterated, like, id and joy. And this we're, is, this is mean, like, we're going to make a movie that's saying something to an extent. And I'm like, well, I think, yeah. Well, this is just about a normal average guy who lives in New York City. <laughs> That's I don't know what you mean. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's true uh, to an extent, but it, it, until he gets involved with the uh, alien parasitic penis. But uh. I like the cast. I like watching the the casting. How he cast the leading man of all his films, like which like uh, uh, featureless white guy that <laughs> is not like not distinct at all. Uh, with brown hair, which one is he gonna pick next? <clears throat> <laughs> uh, so was this your? This was your favorite, wasn't it, Sean? No, or am I wrong on that? I no, Frankenhooker oh, was okay. my favorite. That's very interesting. Well, <laughs> I, it's probably this is this is to me kind of like quintessential as to what he is as a filmmaker and what he was attempting to do. And yeah, there's always this, especially once we get past Basket Case. There's always this sort of like investigation of drug abuse run rampant and uh, which was obviously a, a major issue in new york at the time and yeah this this is uh this is about heroin <laughs> i would say so um somebody type yeah no no i mean you're you're, you're right like it's it, it's very obviously operating in the realm where this is um addiction allegory as creature feature where you know we have another new york anonymous new york dude who finds a small disgusting symbiotic slug with another funny name as well named elmer and he mm -hmm. gets attached to the base of his brain stem and requires you know human body sacrifices in order to keep delivering him this euphoric sensation that he he drips onto him and you know like for for the kids out there, it's the original Venom, and the guy he, he talks like this. He's got like a TV host uh, style voice where he's like, "Just put me on the back of your neck, and everything is gonna be fine." And it's like a Rankin Bass cartoon. Yeah. Or something. That's it's 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 kind of wonderful. And and the main thing of note is that you know it shares a lot of similarity with 
again trying to place up front this pretty you know dramatically serious sort of emotional and psychological relationships whether it's you know this sort of like relationship between a caregiver and his disabled brother and this it's like drug addiction and the dissolving of his relationships in the pursuit of it but once again it's done in this style that is very sticky tangible body horror splatter slapstick to to a certain point with the very grimy texture to it but the budget increase from thirty thousand dollars to something like i think it was like five hundred thousand dollars results in some up, upgrade in imagery if anyone you know thought that the limitations of basket case were not charming to them for me they're charming um for some people this effect show might be a little bit more impressive because the design of elmer just overall is is fantastic like his eyes and his eyebrows and how they wiggle and his like jagged like deep sea creature teeth when he goes to bite people he's just he's a little bugger and he's a slug and it's it's great and and the, it does one of my favorite things that movies do where they create an alternate history where Elmer has like traveled through civilizations and he was like part of the fourth crusades and you know he, yeah. he hung out with the Borgias and was in Nazi Germany for a little <laughs> while <laughs> yeah that's so great that there's all that there's that history but also like the recent uh history of him with this like old couple that, that have just lost yes him. Well, and everyone's very upset like it's it's this very it, like it's like an extreme version of losing a pet to these characters because they're just so addicted yeah. to the sensation that he gives to them um which is depicted <laughs> in this as like he injects them with like blue brain juice and it creates like little psychedelic raves in their mind like one of the ones that uh the main guy goes to first is like he goes to the junkyard from street trash mm -hmm. and he's like oh my god <laughs> wow Wow. <laughs> this is the best. Yeah. It's perhaps I the really least fantastical. That. Yeah. <laughs> so unimaginable. Uh but 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 just like the the visual design stuff, like the first I think flourish is um <clears throat> is like when his bedroom becomes like half yes. cool. Um and uh, obviously it looks a bit archaic now, but it, I mean, there's, there's charm to that. And the but, lamp um, turning into like an eyeball fantastic. with veins on it and stuff. Like it's, it's very yeah. hallucinatory in a way that I don't think he was capable of doing on basket case. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. And, and ultimately again, it is just, there's a little leech who gives him LSD and he hallucinates and he does it so that he can take control of their, their bodies. And there is a, you know, there is a consistent kind of idea around all of these films to do with, with bodies bodily like the bodily horror is you know part of being uh, autonomous and not and having control or not having control because Bilal wants to have a body like his brother he wants to be normal like his brother in this it's like he literally gives up control of his body for this sensation and we'll get to it with Frankenhooker but Frankenhooker has the you know the bride of Frankenstein <laughs> style um you know uh someone creating you and you not asking them to in that kind of way um right. so like this is probably the one consistent thing that seems to go across a lot of his work and i think this one does it pretty well just by making that kind of horror so upsetting because this probably has what I mean, maybe we'll, maybe bad biology has some stuff that's more controversial, but people just haven't seen that one. <laughs> this probably has the most controversial image he ever put in a film, which is Elmer yeah. basically taking the place of a uh, functionally a penis 
and being shoved through the back of a woman's head who is, you know, being, uh, you know, orally raped, essentially. Oh, that was supposed. Oh, that was supposed to be his penis. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty subtle stuff. Yeah, I yeah. Can see how you the giant log of poop no, between that, his that, crotch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that is genuinely shocking. Uh, yeah, he, he had crew walk out on powerful. him shooting that scene. Apparently, that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> and I mean, it holds for a long time. Like uh, he's very interested in like uh, watching the the power dynamic mm-hmm. there. Yeah, it's it's a it's a, it's a one of the more again and sort of upsetting and difficult scenes to watch alongside the Bilal scene from Basket Case, and it's just it's always one of those things where, you know, uh, it it is Hen and Lauder taking some of this material a little bit more seriously than you would expect of the Grindhouse Fair. Like he's like obviously it's a it's a shock and it's a you know it's a makeup effect in a fun way, but it's one of those ones that you just you know you don't you don't cheer watching that in the way you might you know other sequences no. that you watch. You're just you know and the, how chunky it is and the drool hanging off of elmer like every tangible detail of it is just you know meant to upset you and it's echoed again later in bad biology and like yes. we'll talk about um but uh yeah um he has an interesting relationship to sex i mean w- which i think is what i appreciate about he's got some hang-ups um, we can say like across this, the work for sure he he does and and um films like this and frankenhooker um and bad biology uh are like we get to see like him use his art to explore those ideas and hang-ups and just basic relationship with sex and his own body uh in ways that uh, i think is like really special and and even doubly so that it's packaged in something that is like this grindhouse fair where you're not really always expecting um something so personal mm-hmm. maybe mm-hmm. yeah I, I i could see that parallel with cronenberg i think really the only one of these that i would draw parallels with cronenberg at all is is uh, bad biology but uh <laughs> that is in a very particular way i would say but i think that our boys like they, mut- they, mutilated and mutated genitalia what can you say <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I think that the, for me, what you could draw as a parallel between the two as filmmakers, and they're very, very different filmmakers tonally, certainly, um, is they both kind of feel like asexual observers of, of human sexuality at times. Like, mm-hmm. this is this does not feel like the approach of someone who has a healthy relationship with sex, generally. It's like he's thinking about it from a very detached way and, you know... This sort of bizarre, skewed view of the body and, you know, this idea of physical interaction in a dependence. And yeah, there's something there's something there. I can see why parallels would be drawn. But if you if you go in expecting Cronenberg when you when you dip in on Henneladder, then you're going to you're going to be disappointed probably in a way. But uh, yeah, you, 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 you have you to shouldn't. go in expecting more lines like uh, a flatly delivered. Hey. When it comes to blood in my underwear, I want to know how it got there. Myro, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you could say a lot of the same things about uh, Bootcrate as well. Um, yeah, the yeah. relationship to sex there is—I uh, I think what you just said resonates. Um, that terms of, in terms of like that asexuality, or I mean, I don't know if that's the right right term, but like that sort of 
distance like frustrated observer yeah i i for sure could see that i i think that's uh maybe a key element that sort of bizarre asexual robotic approach if you're going to make horror movies about sex maybe that's really the way to tackle it because you get a lot of uh interesting output i'll say that um yeah i suppose we could we can move on past brain damage your movie i feel like i'm always a little lower on than most and that's not to say i don't enjoy it because i really do it's just i don't know it's not it's not basket case it doesn't have the right new york grimy look to me it's a it's a little little too clean it's somewhere in the middle and uh i feel like he's he's got this money and he's made this better effect and then he gets a little too in love with showing us that he's got this better effect. Like, I don't need to see Aylmer's <laughs> mouth open 7,000 times in this man of this 80 minute film. I do really um, like the iconic image of the fireworks coming out of the top of his skull uh, when it gets to oh, it, yeah. when, when he decides that he's going to overdose on it to prevent Elmer from doing it to more people. Because that is that is another thing that I forgot to mention is that um, <clears throat> brain damage. Oh, wait, no. It's Frankenhooker. Never mind. <laughs> well, what I'll say, what I'll say is that um, it, it sort of builds off uh, brain damage uh, into being more of a one of my favorite subgenres, which is a uh, mad scientist in the lab movie. Um, and only the uh, stuff in the lab is uh, dead legs and arms. Yeah. Um, so I guess one of the other recurring players here is Joseph Gonzalez, who we'll talk about more in Frankenhooker because he plays like the antagonist Zorro, but here he's in one of the scenes that really stuck <laughs> oh, out yeah. to me, uh, this go round where he's just, it's like this strange, like play on like bathhouse culture. And he's just like this big burly bodybuilder standing there naked and you keep expecting again. It's a very phallic film, and we've got Aylber, like, zipping around the shower, and you're like, oh, God, where the fuck is this going? And then it just kind of dissipates, and it goes in an entirely different direction. Yeah, but I mean, this is actually, I'm glad you brought this up. This is one of my favorite um, Hennenlotter qualities, is that he kind of has sort of some of that, like, John Waters, like, he, he kind of loves yeah. the weirdos that he depicts, and, like, the subcultures and communities. And in Basket Case, one of my favorite aspects is he kind of loves all of the weird eccentric characters who hang out at the scuzzy motel and there is like an alternate version of that movie you wonder about where like Bilal just you know he gets to be a weirdo with all the other weirdos and just hang out at the at the bar with them and in this one yeah you have like this ripped dude in the shower who you you know would assume either he's going to get attacked by Elmer or he's going to like assault the main guy or something in the shower but instead he goes up to him he's like dude are you okay like no one no one's going to hurt you man like it's and then he just leaves <laughs> It's a, a peculiar scene, but yeah. it really stands out, I gotta say. And that guy, I could see why he brought him back, because he's got such an interesting screen presence. But uh, we'll we'll get into that as we transition mm -hmm. into Frankenhooker, which is, this is a weird one, because in many ways to me, it's kind of like, this feels the least head and ladder of the four films. Like, this is a, uh, distributed by Troma, and yeah. <laughs> 
it feels a lot like trauma at times. Yeah, but no, this is a this this feels more like a Stuart Gordon film watching it because I yeah. was just watching. This is the one I was watching for the <laughs> this and Bad Biology. I was just watching for the first time, and I was definitely surprised that it didn't have. I mean, like if if you were concerned that brain damage was like about something, I guess this is the one <laughs> that is is you know about. I think a little bit like it doesn't have that same emotional and psychological relationship where his relationships are crumbling or you know you're meant to feel that you know you're meant to really feel for him i don't think in in the same way like his his fiance in this film it's dying in the opening scene is like a gag she gets run over (laughs) in a by an automatic robot lawnmower and just goop (laughs) flies all over her family's birthday it feels like straight out of straight out of a 90s john waters movie and they're talking about like uh you know how much weight she's gained or or like you know how much she's watching her weight and there's this like kind of shrillness to it but but it's packaged in like this uh beautiful suburbia uh, yeah it, it it's right in that same milieu it's a bizarre film i'll say that cuz everything is a gag and it does have ideas it is it has this whole like you know crack addiction subplot it has super crack it, exactly <laughs> super explosive super crack right when you think he might be saying something he calls it super crack yes um, uh, yeah and it's like he's like brain damage was a little too subtle yeah there's this whole idea uh, of like you know where what defines a person you know how how this wife that he resurrects is is basically embodied by the parts that comprise her rather than her mind so there's ideas here but don't don't be fooled there's not it's not a smart film this is like the the most gag filled gag fest you'll ever see it's a it's a complete farce of a film but it's also a Mm. blast (laughs) that a terrifying tale of sluts and bolts That again, distributed by Troma. That's like a Lloyd Kaufman fucking tagline if I've ever <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I was uh taken by by how much uh I want to pair this with uh with all Motivar's the skin I live in, because um it's like uh I mean he must have clearly been a fan of of, of Henenlauter's film because they uh have very parallel uh tales in the last uh half or last third of recreating this body um <clears throat> for their own wishes against the uh against the consent of, of the actual body mm-hmm. uh you may be making a, a bit of a leap there sean but uh we'll, we'll go with it <laughs> whatever fine <laughs> I, I haven't uh, seen yeah. it recently enough to say, but uh, I could. It, it would well, it would hey. make a fun double feature, regardless. <laughs> That's right. That's all I'm saying. And you just watched this, Josh. So before October's over, put in that all motivation. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you might be. Uh, you might be. A little yeah, surprised. we'll see. We'll see. I mean, I was definitely when I went into this, I definitely knew that it was exactly what the title said it was. Very much being a trauma thing. Like it was like, what if? The yeah. Bride of Frankenstein was reassembled using the body parts of various uh, New York Red District prostitutes that the character could find. But I, what I didn't expect is because Henenlotter, I'm, you know, again, was kind of primed for this sort of psychological connection between the monster and the creator. And I definitely was like, oh, this has more of the trauma wackiness and more of like the the Stuart Gordon, like mad science hijinks of something like Reanimator. Um 
mm-hmm. and taken to these, you know, pretty legitimately disgusting and, and, and off-putting extremes, which is, you know, not dissimilar for Hannah Lauder, but I would say not done in quite exactly the same way it's done here like in the big finale where you literally have like little you know mutated slimy monsters with faces and chunky body parts just like rolling around on the floor and take you know taking bites out of people it's um the main guy even kind of looks like jeffrey combs a little bit which i was a little surprised by yeah i I love so james lorenz or lorenz um who plays jeffrey franken um i love this performance i think that's what does it for me like he he carries like the whole film uh, with like this monologue. The one he uh, gives to his mom. Delivery. <clears throat> uh, the one where, where he, that he's just always kind of like talking, like just generally like talking out loud mm-hmm. through like the process, um, like when he's in the lab and stuff. And it just keeps like uh, elevating. And it, it, it's like it's one of those performances that you're kind of waiting to break and it, it never really does. Yeah, I, I mean, it, I think that what Josh is mentioning with the, the mother is probably like the standout line in the film where he's just talking about losing his grip on reality and the ability right. to tell right from wrong. And she's like, well, I, I made you some eggs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, you want a sandwich, honey? And meanwhile, the next scene, he's like keeping his fiance's head, a uh, decapitated head on a table. And he's like pouring wine into their into her mouth as the camera dollies along. And you're watching the wine flow from her mouth into her neck and onto the white tablecloth and stuff and and doing bizarre things like testing out his super crack on hamsters and power drilling his own uh-huh. head to unwind because it's getting filled with too much shit. <laughs> oh yeah. That, yeah. Again, like that's, that's like uh, his performance during that is great. Like he's just kind of like talking her through it and you're trying to figure out, yeah, what the hell is going on? Like with all the, the different like segments that he's trying to tap into. It's such a weird yeah, and and the the big the big crazy scene in this one i guess has got to be the the motel orgy sequence when he yeah. brings in every single prostitute that he can find and he hires dozens of them and you know he's he's the whole scene is him inspecting each of their body parts for as he says it size and buoyancy so that he can find the perfect <laughs> parts to rebuild you know a body for his girlfriend's head that has been separated by a lawnmower <laughs> uh, and there is lots of gratuitous shots of legs and breasts and asses as he you know is like literally there's a shot where he's just like crawling through all of their legs and they're you know doing at one point they're dancing to as he calls it the devil's music and they eventually find <laughs> his crack which he says is a was meant for as a prize for the winner and they all start smoking it on the spot And then as they're dancing around, each one of them just starts to explode and like full on chunky, just, you know, separating the torso from the waist and just flying across the room. There's even one amazing POV shot of a leg essentially flying through the air like it's a missile with the heel on and everything. It's pretty incredible visually. Yeah. And then and then Zoro comes up and you're kind of like, okay, how? How is is he gonna like write this in and like how is Zoro gonna like not be not not stop him like how's he gonna get out of the the motel with all these bodies and like Zoro's huge he's gonna stop him and he opens the door and a flying head just like knocks him out <laughs> uh, it's ridiculous yeah. 
but he like I love that he's leaning in like to to this taboo of these like hookers doing crack in New York. Like I don't it, it's it's a uh, like you can feel that it's made by a guy who's like been in this scene for a long time and is fascinating fascinated by it and part of it and all this stuff i don't know it's um and and also like edging into that john waters farces um it works on me Mm -hmm. yeah and like elizabeth's only like personality trait that comes through the initial resurrection is like compulsive eating of pretzels it's just it's such a goofy goddamn movie. Her it, performance is like, very funny, though. Patty, Patty yeah, Mullen, because she, she yeah. doesn't get reanimated, honestly, until, you know, there's only like a half hour left in the movie. But when she comes back, like just the her wobbling around in her purple bra and mini skirt <laughs> and the powdered face makeup. And she like she's very clearly been clumsily stitched together because all the hookers exploded. He doesn't have the ideal body parts. So that's why she, her, you know, her body is like a mangled mess. And she just walks around. And the, my favorite thing that she does is. She essentially has an amalgamation of all of the girls who she's been assembled into. And so her main personality is just, well, I got to get back out on the street and start doing my job. So it's just her walking around <laughs> in the like least social way possible, being like lonely, need some company. Anybody got any <laughs> money? <a> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just she's she's a lot of fun when when she gets to, uh, you know, uh, just walk around very clearly these real streets, just alienating people. And I do wonder yeah. if that was shot Larry Cohen style where it's just, you know, like no, no extras, just Corral. people reacting to this woman. Right. I, yeah. You had to think this was the um, Halloween costume of the year in 19. Absolutely. <laughs> this is a horrible white face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one white hand is <laughs> it's like boy do you think the circulation would be pretty uniform but i don't know yeah. who am i to say yeah well <laughs> and it all does lead to a pretty crazy finale where zorro walks into the garage with a machete <laughs> and chops jeff's head off just as he has like awakened elizabeth and found you know she's actually being a little concerned about what he's done and he's trying to make he's trying to make it make sense to her he's like you know well i've i've made you i brought you back and it doesn't matter that you have all of these you know, uh, body parts of other people. And she's trying to explain that. Obviously, she didn't consent to that. She might not have wanted this if she had asked him. And he doesn't really get a chance to even finish his monologue before his head is chopped off. And almost like society-esque mutant body parts start just gooping and sliming around the room and swallowing him up into the freezer, which is all the various uh, body parts that he didn't use. And in order to bring Jeff back to life, Elizabeth puts his uh, head on the remaining, uh, you know, female body parts that were hanging around. And he has he now has a woman's body. And it's this little reversal where she basically gets to deliver the same monologue where she's just like, well, you know, it's it's better that you're alive. And, you know, you know, I, I didn't have time to ask you which body you wanted or <laughs> But, you know, he's kind of had the tables turned on him a little bit. And that's the part that reminded me the most of Bride of Frankenstein, which is one of my favorite Universal Monsters movies, specifically because the bride doesn't come back to life until the last 10 minutes and they spend the whole movie building to it. And she just fucking hates her life the second she's brought back to life. It's like an existential crisis that he has done this <laughs> to her. And so this this I did find got a little bit more power for me at the end, which is which is obviously in Henenlotter fashion, it's still like a like a, a shock gag to just see jeff uh, jeff's head on a woman's body but it it does have you know you eat some basis in the ideas of the bodily autonomy of the film and everything so i i think it's great 
it is a it is a bizarre one it feels like the end is very abrupt too you're like yes oh is this gonna resolve like oh this because it, it, it makes a point of showing the lightning is affecting this freezer full of other parts but you're kind of like expecting he's promising to put these other women back together like oh it's just gonna be this whole like pack of these hookers and what's gonna happen how's this gonna affect Zoro? and then it's just like Boom, Zoro comes in, pops his head off, the movie ends. <laughs> it's like, none of this is resolved at all, but it, it, okay, that's fine. I, it's just, it's brisk, it's fun. If you, uh, you know, it, it's, it's probably somewhat, you know, dated and problematic in its depiction uh, of, of everything, but um, yeah, if, if you're game for that, then you're going to have a lot of fun. Go. You're renting a movie called Frankenhooker. I think you probably have some idea. Yeah, you, of what know, you're in you know. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure. I, I like Steve hell? and I watched this like back to back with like Hollywood chainsaw <laughs> <laughs> or whatnot. So it's like, yeah, we know what kind of evening this is. Um. Well, let's. Should, should we get on to yeah, the uh, this the one is... everyone's been waiting for? <laughs> I, boy i had seen this when it was new and wow i hadn't seen it since and yeah it was interesting <laughs> to i'll say that uh see when we talk about cronenberg this is the only one that really sticks out to me is like uh, we just covered um crimes of the future earlier this year we we did both of them uh, the cronenberg like really early almost student film and the new film and this to me I'm like, this would kind of fit on that podcast if we wanted to do a pairing or something, because it's got a lot of the same, like, rudimentary storytelling you see in the very early Crimes of the Future, um, with just kind of this dense wall of exposition being spoken to you at all times, uh, and it also has this... It opens... Yeah, you'll go on show. It opens with one of the the great all time movie quotes. What's that? I do like I, I have seven clits. <laughs> I was born with seven clits. Um, yeah, it it's surprising how much this echoes like that early Crimes of the Future, <laughs> um, which is uh, very much the same way. I, I suppose the new one is as well about this sort of like idea of mutation and what modernity does to the human existence in. in portrayed through the body in many ways but that being said as much as i think this is kind of treading the same ground that some of these cronenberg movies have and even using some similar techniques it's also like one of the most uh, purely pornographic and juvenile <laughs> narratives you can possibly imagine so there's that literally pornographic yes. like of the fabric of porn yeah yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, it's something special. Uh, it is. Um, it, it it's quintessential late style in that, like you know, it's a filmmaker who is known, like has a career behind him of like classics, and turns out this thing that he, you know, it, it was produced by R. A. The Rugged and Man, who has a short appear. Yeah, and co-written and. Uh, produced like solely by him i i believe um he has a he has a short role as the sensitive boyfriend <laughs> who uh walks out uh once he get gets a gander but um <clears throat> uh who also used to write a film 
column in Mass Appeal. Very interesting guy, it seems like. But anyway, uh, financing this film for Hen and Lauder, who like wanted to shoot this thing on 35 millimeter, which is amazing when you watch it. <laughs> Um, I would know. never have guessed in a million years that this was shot on <laughs> no. 35 bills. No. It's it's ridiculous. And but basically like being like only really wanting to make something if he knew that, you know, he could do whatever the hell he wanted, which um you know, uh this wouldn't this wouldn't get by on on many like producers who were um who had to either like answer to a censor board or uh were interested in a financial investment. No, they had uh, apparently an earlier script that funding fell through on. I don't know if it's um, an iteration, really, but uh, there was a movie called Sick in the Head that Ari, the Rugged Man, and Henning Lauder worked on together that fell through. Again, uh, it may very well have evolved into bad biology, but uh, I wonder how these people <laughs> got involved with each other, because it just seems like such a bizarre pairing, because Henning Lauder is a fucking old man at this point. You know? Oh yeah, he hasn't well, made it, a movie in like eighteen years. <laughs> Man, my yeah, well, and that's one of the things that is gonna like, if you're doing what it is that we've done here, where you're gonna go basket case, brain damage, Frankenhooker into this. <laughs> the thing that you just have to know is that it's a classic example of like a movie premise that would look like a real movie if it was done in the 80s but done in 2008, oh, it doesn't yeah. look like a real movie. So no. it's you know it's. It makes it make, makes the canyons look like Titanic. Yeah, so it's one of the like it's just so your mileage is going to vary on how much you can handle the fact that you know just being an amateur movie in 2008 it looks and sounds not as good as his movie that he shot for thirty thousand dollars with like three people um, <laughs> with 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 basket case, but. Yeah. If you can get past that and you can be charmed by just the uh, amount of sheer no budget ridiculousness that he tries to put on the screen in this, which is, you know, about essentially a woman with a uh, mutated vagina who has become something of a and probably if we're talking problematic depictions of things that maybe haven't aged well like as a very vicious man eater essentially who goes out into the <laughs> night and looks for random uh men that she can have very rough sex with to satisfy her because she needs she needs that little bit of extra effort and when she's doing it, she tends to kill the men that she's having sex with. And then her reproductive system is also mutated. So she basically gets pregnant and gives birth within two hours of every single sexual interaction mm -hmm. she has where she murders the men. And then you just get scenes where she just like throws <laughs> CG babies into trash cans. <laughs> And, and addresses the camera uh, she's like this isn't like a real no. baby it's, it's <laughs> fucking very like it reads like some cons like something you'd see in like a mega church or something. Yeah. <laughs> like this is what the, this is what second wave feminism has done <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, and she and she has like special and, electrode masturbation tools that you could imagine the twin <laughs> brothers in Dead Ringers like inventing, and she's screaming mm -hmm. about how like she wants God to fuck her, and uh, yeah, it just <laughs> really absurd stuff. Well, she's she, at the core of things. She's uh, she's a uh, an independent woman looking mm -hmm. for uh, her better yeah, half, which she does yeah. eventually find in what is a. <laughs> 
a uh, man who has a giant and full-on prosthetic creature effect penis that is sentient and addicted to drugs <laughs> and every time he pulls it out it makes a hilarious cartoon sound effect where it's like slapping the walls and the floor <laughs> he has a giant machine that looks like a wood sander that he needs to jack himself off it is it's insane which also looks like a camera like a like a film like projector in a, in a oh cinema. yeah um from from the he was profile. definitely saying something uh, with that one yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yeah but yeah it's basically Ulmer. <laughs> yeah uh yeah sort of it, it is just ah uh, man I, I it does play a lot with that impotence thing too that sort of asexuality where this this man had a non-functioning penis uh, through puberty, and uh, it has only become this monstrous entity due to uh, pharmaceutical interventions. It's just <laughs> bizarre stuff. <laughs> yeah, have either of you seen the movie um, Welcome it. Home, Brother Charles? That was the movie I was thinking about while watching this. It's the only other movie Ooh, I've seen know. that also has a giant, um, like... The, the reveal is like a gag reveal that he has a massive penis that he can use as a weapon. But in that film, he uses it to basically like strangle cops and people who are going after him because <laughs> it's it's meant as like this sort of like angry racist emasculation kind of metaphor where the black man takes his giant dick and literally strangles people to death with it. <laughs> uh-huh. And so this one is, you know, it, it, I don't think it's trying to say anything like that um, it, with it, but it's definitely just the only other film I've seen that actually has the giant gag reveal where you just see the dude and his giant penis hanging off of his body and he's like fighting it and stuff. It's just, it's so, it's, it's really dumb, honestly, yeah. but it's hilarious. Previous to the reveal, he's just like duct taping his pants whenever he has to like act in like society or like answer the door. <clears throat> and it's just like whipping around. And he lives in this big house that's like clearly a porn house. Uh, and there's a great image of like uh, the TV's on all showing like uh, uh, porn that he's just like always listening to. Mm-hmm. It's a uh, it's uh, it's it's. Uh, very quality. Yeah, I mean, stuff. it also contains <laughs> um, like a five to ten minute long montage of the penis disconnected from his body, just breaking through drywall and floorboards in order to get into <laughs> rooms with various <laughs> girls who are completely naked and doing POV pornographic cam shots of like stalking them uh, while attacking them and eventually, you know, fucking them to death, essentially. Yeah, this is like oh, good uh, brain damage effect, too, where there's like you're like, okay, that was pretty cool that you got this like detailed mouth for Aylmer that he's like in- injecting this thing. You don't need to show it 75 times. And that's <laughs> the same thing here where they're like in this montage, it's like, whoa, that's that's cool. They they, they pulled off this thing where it's like busting through the wall. And then he, <laughs> it's way to get from room to room is to do that exact same thing like 25 more times. I'm like, yeah, it's enough with this drywall shit. <laughs> There's there's also a great scene that is very like uh, apt for like a Cronenberg comparison um, where it's like a porno like shoot like a model shoot and uh, they have like face masks mm-hmm. that and the face is a vagina um, and the scene also uh, has a, uh, a diegetic 
uh, introduction to Jedi mind tricks. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's uh, also features movie... a woman giving a CPR to the penis to try and bring it back to life and like blowing yeah. into it. <laughs> Basic. It's basically uh, the film of a Freeman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and the acting is often also quite porn quality. We'll, we'll say. Um, what is that damned movie that uh, we've done an episode on it uh, with where the man hired the porn actors to read his fucking insane ramblings? Uh, I don't remember what the hell it's called, but uh, it's in the archives. It's it's a very uh, interesting project, whereas it uh, like uh, comedian hired. He farmed out a script of like complete mad nonsense to uh, several different like custom porn houses and uh, just edited together the material that he got back. And um, yeah, this, this has that same sort of feel of like, you took this batshit fucking script and just kind of gave it over to people who probably had no <laughs> grasp of it. <laughs> and it just, it plays out in, in such a surreal fashion. Final Flesh? I think that's what it's called. I believe it's called Final Flesh. Worth seeking out if you have not seen that. It is a very bizarre and interesting thing. Um, yeah, but this is this is exactly that. Uh, a bizarre and interesting thing. And it's, again, kind of ugly in a way that you'd be shocked that it was, it was properly filmed on 35. Like, uh, apparently they must have used the entirety of the budget on film stock and uh, could not afford, like, a, a light <laughs> or something of that nature. Because... This is a flat, ugly thing, uh, but man, it is, I wish they made more movies like it because it is, it, it's never boring. That's for certain. No, it's a Friday night. I'm home alone. Grab a beer. Put this on. I have no idea what the hell he's trying to go for with the, uh, the ending there with <laughs> where she finally fucks God and then everyone in the film dies and a penis baby <laughs> runs out of the frame. Yeah just blows its way out essentially <laughs> come to Wait, credits to, uh, to, uh, to uh, one of the film's many uh, hip hop uh, soundtrack needle drops that I was like yeah. I don't understand <laughs> I did listen to a, a R.A. the Rugged Man album after watching this well I I imagine so the man's got taste he's just inexplicably into Frank Hennenlotter um <laughs> I noticed the end credits rap mentioned Frank Hennenlotter having cancer, and I was like, is that a thing? Like, <laughs> I don't know. I didn't see any mention of it uh, in anything I read online, but uh, old R.A. Huh. was like, I'm making a film with Frank Hennenlotter till he got cancer. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> like, is this a... Is this, uh, uh, like, a biographical, or is it just <laughs> we're giving him cancer in your song for some reason? <laughs> I don't know. Uh... Bad biology, fucking weird goddamn movie, uh, but watch it. If, as long as you're yeah. not, like, you know, if there's anyone in your household that uh, might stumble <laughs> into the room, maybe don't watch it. <laughs> I'm glad you added it to the list, Myers, because this is like basically the best case scenario when you're like going through like Letterboxd or just like going through a filmmaker's. Uh, filmography and like you know they used to work like like decades ago and you go oh wow they made something within the last five years interesting 
Like this is the best case scenario of stuff you're going to. Yeah, I, I entirely agree. And I think it's also like, for me, it was an interesting way to kind of reframe him and separating, separate his perspective a bit from his peers. Because if, if we just sat down and watched the previous three films, you could kind of look at him I wouldn't say interchangeably, but, but in many ways, like he's just another of these grindhouse guys. And I feel like the existence of this batshit fucking thing it, it separates him in some way. It makes me go, oh, this guy's got a really different perspective than a, a William Lusty right. does. That's for goddamn certain. All right. Well, yeah, let's, let's wrap it here and we will move on to uh, everyone's favorite segment, the putovers. Um, Josh, I'm going to start with you. Uh, have you seen anything recently you think our uh, listeners should check out? Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of uh, 80s sort of like creature movies, I actually had the opportunity to watch one I had never heard of on a on a very rare print that played here in Toronto. And it was it's uh, directed by um, George P. How do you say it? Cosmatos, the father of Panos, the guy who did um, sure. First Blood Part Two and Tombstone and Cobra. Anyway, mm-hmm. in, in 1983, he did a film called Of Unknown Origin starring Peter Weller, which is essentially like a, a yuppie guy goes crazy in his house because it's been infested by a giant rat. And it's the entire movie. It's like it's it's like an interspecies duel, <laughs> uh, they call it. And um, it's not like amazing or anything but i with a crowd of people who were unsure how to react to it it was a lot of fun um like it's it's very simple and silly and there's a little bit of like a man versus beast and you know he's an emasculated yuppie and all of that but the there's a very dynamic kind of like perspective and scale imagery with how the rat like moves around the house as a physical threat there's actually like split diopter shots of him like stalking and preying on uh peter weller who's just like slowly losing uh his mind and starts escalating into you know i'm gonna tear this whole place apart i'm gonna turn my baseball bat into a mace and start hammering the walls and you know I'm going to do, a, you know, the, the level of sort of psychological and physical destruction that takes place in his like handcrafted home is very funny. And Peter Weller, I'll say this is before Robocop. He takes the performance very, very seriously in, in a really <laughs> fun way where he he just goes on like a monologue, uh, like a, an anti-rat propaganda monologue where he's like, it's the lapdog <laughs> of the devil. You know, there's more more of them than us on Earth. And they've you know, they've killed more people than, you know, in, in all of human history. And it's very it's very, very ridiculous stuff. And for anyone who likes like Verbinski's Mouse Hunt. It's basically the same movie, but done in like a, you know, like a like an 80s horror creature feature kind of context. And uh, it's it's very fun. Yeah, it's been years since I've seen that one, but I did quite enjoy it at the time for sure. It was a it's a good time. And Weller is quite excellent in it. Uh, yeah, I mean, as far as going to movies that you've never heard of because they are just on a print and you're like, OK, uh, I, I had it. You know, <laughs> it was definitely worthwhile. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, Sean, what do you have? Um, I also had a, uh, rare opportunity this past week. Uh, it was not a print, but, um, I got to go see, um, the 1926 film, A Page of Madness oh, by Tino Kinugasa with, yeah. And there was a live score and also a live Benchy. It was like, um, I think the first or second time it had been shown with a Benchy in the States. It was unsubtitled. So it was like, you weren't really getting a whole lot from, 
from the benchy other than the experience of like having her there but um uh very uh bizarre abstract surreal um silent film uh horror film and it's really hard to describe outside of that but um yeah really really fantastic well there you go uh i as always don't watch things but uh you know i I did. I did go see Ticket to Paradise for my uh, film program, and uh, the movie stars you know, were back. Yeah, all you Henenlotter heads are really gonna love Ticket to Paradise. Now, I, I was. I, w- I will say, I was surprised. I was kind of dreading the thing. And if you're buying a ticket to Paradise, then this is. It's exactly. It delivers exactly what you want out of such a movie. So, was this with the screenwriter? Yeah, or something? the screenwriter the is a, a U of M grad and was wow uh, present at the thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, wow. So we all had exclusive engagement. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um. But anyway, <laughs> it's there's nothing remarkable about Ticket to Paradise. But if you want like a throwback, like big rom com that they don't really make anymore, uh yeah, that's exactly what you'll get here. And uh, Clooney and Roberts are are fun and and sexy old people. And uh, there you go. You <laughs> you will enjoy. It, it will be money well spent if if you know what you're uh, going in for. Yeah, double feature uh, it with a uh, bad biology. Get your romance on. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Um, Come home. Yeah, wash the taste of uh, Clooney and Roberts out. <laughs> All right, well, we can wrap things up here. Uh, just a reminder that uh, we are a Patreon-supported podcast. Uh, just helps us to uh, cover expenses, you know. We're not out here making money, but um, just like to thank uh, Kofax Kropotkin, CWW, Evan, Ryan, Dustin, and Paula for your help keeping us afloat. And, um, yeah, we have a link in the description. Uh, any donation at all. And Steve is going to send you a DVD, Blu-ray, etc. out of his personal collection, assuming you live in the continental United States. Um, other than that, we don't really care about uh, reviews these days so much. But uh, if you want to get a hold of us, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, and we will answer any queries. Uh, going to kick to Josh. Josh, uh, where can people find you? Yeah, well, you can find me at at the Josh L on Twitter and Letterboxd. Uh, I am currently in the midst of watching every Amityville horror film, uh, which is taking a toll on. I feel like I'm going Peter Weller in a, uh, un, of unknown origin mode <laughs> as I go through. I How there is there? over thirty, and I am in the middle of the 2010s direct to video oh, wow. era where they were releasing like three or four a year, and they range from student films. To <laughs> Uh, I just watched like a Weinstein one from 2017 today that was also brutal it doesn't matter how much money they are they're all basically bad Um, but uh, yeah I also do a podcast called Sleezoids so you can find us talking about all kinds of genre and exploitation double features where you know if you like Frank Henenlotter that's all we do we've spent the entire month talking like Sergio Martino and uh, William Lustig and uh, we just did an episode on Night of the Demons and Nightbreed, which I had actually never seen Clyde Barker's Nightbreed before. And that was uh, one. Ha- speaking of monster movie stuff, that was a one hell of an experience. So and speaking of David Cronenberg and David Cronenberg, that's right. As a, as a very large role as a slasher yeah. villain in that film, which I did not expect. Did you watch the uh, new cut? 
Yes, I watched the non-theatrical, so the the okay. two-hour-long one, which it it's a bit it's a bit much, it's a bit long, but it does have like it climaxes on thirty straight minutes of monsters just tearing, you know, sort of like gun-toting. Uh, supremacists and cops apart essentially who are there trying to genocide all of them in their little cemetery so i was like uh definitely in terms of analog effects that movie is way more expensive than it probably should have been yes yes well probably why it got into studio hell in the first place but yes. um yeah i have not seen it in years and years but i before the new cut existed i i saw the theatrical so it's one i i'm interested to revisit at some point just to see the changes in the in the other cut but uh mm-hmm. yeah not a bad film nightbreed not a bad podcast sleazoids you probably are aware of it if you listen to us because you know they are bigger and better and uh yeah hey now we hey are, now we're hey we we glad to have josh <laughs> here and uh thanks for putting up with uh my stammering bullshit uh if if you you're always welcome to rejoin and maybe Absolutely. we'll even have our uh our regular host here to uh steer the fucking ship but uh, yeah no, I'd love to. And if you're sick of hearing Sean, well, good news, it's the end of October. Bad news, uh, we'll have him back soon to cover Shabral uh, once again. So I think that is it for this evening. Uh, thank you all for listening, and uh, happy Halloween.